give thanks to the Lord, call on God's name, make known God's deeds among the peoples. Seek God's presence continually. Remember the wonderful work the Lord has done, God's miracles, and the judgment of God's Let us pray. Almighty God, Creator, in our going out and our coming in, your glory surrounds us and clarifies our lives. Light lifts up our hearts to you in the morning and night falls around us in peace. Through mist and storm, sun and heat, new life has taken root. The crops have ripened, the fruits have grown. Mustard seeds have been planted and bloomed into great bushes. Your constant care in all and everywhere is manifest. We know both darkness and light have been of your ordaining for our own soul's health and the world's well-being. Your constant care in all and everywhere is manifest. Sun behind all suns, in all created things you are there. In every friend we have, and in every enemy, and in every stranger, you are there. May we behold your glory in each moment in every place, in each breath we take, in every life we see. We pray in your name, O creating, redeeming, and sustaining God. Amen.
You'll find the Glasgow Cathedral and the live streaming, you'll find the most extraordinary thing in there. You will see me sitting in a pew. You'll also have the chance to see our uh, choir leading worship at St. Mungo's in Glasgow. So all of these things to know that let us continue our worship now with our confession. kingdom of heaven, my friends, is for all of us. But we come to this space full of our own burdens, both our individual burdens and our shared corporate burdens, like the burdens of gun violence and the ravages that we have caused to our climate and to the earth. So let us confess our sins before our triune God, first together and then in silence. Let us pray. Eternal God, we have sought your blessing upon us, yet even as we ask, we know that we cannot merit it. Our lives stand not as testimony to your goodness, but as reminders of our sin. We have failed at our calling to be your people, and show your way to the world around us. And so, in honesty, we come seeking your healing touch upon our lives, your cleansing word to our sin. Forgive us, we pray, for our failures, and help us live as though we are recipients of grace upon grace. We ask in the name of Jesus and for his sake. to condemn. It is Christ who died and who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. And he does not condemn us, but forgives. Believe the promise of this gospel. We begin the scripture readings this morning with the epistle lesson, a familiar passage in Paul's letter to the church at Rome, from the eighth chapter beginning with the 26th verse. Listen, listen for God's word. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. And God, who searches hearts, knows what is the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to God's purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, 
he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And who is to condemn? It is Christ who died, or rather who was raised, who is also at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here ends the epistle lesson. The Gospel from <clears throat> the Gospel of Matthew is also familiar, a small group of parables that Jesus told his disciples, reading beginning in chapter 13. Listen for the word of God in these small teachings. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make their nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and reburied. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets and threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all this? 
They answered, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is old and what is new. Amen. Our Old Testament lesson is taken from the book of Genesis, the 29th chapter, beginning at verse 15 and continuing through verse 28. Listen for the word of God to us this day. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was graceful and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered, every, gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her maid. When morning came, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, This is not done in our country to Give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other in return for serving another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week, and Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as a wife. This is the word of the Lord.
Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Why don't we begin with a cataloging of everything about this story that is just messed up? It is not right for us to treat the Bible so gingerly that we cannot acknowledge when the stories, the words, the attitudes contained therein perplex us as modern readers. That is precisely when we need to dig deep down in the subterranean strata to see what's really going on, knowing that the Word of God is not fragile. It is durable enough to stand up to any test we may bring to it. If not, what are we even doing here? My hunch is, as you listened to that story, one or two things, or maybe three, jumped out at you as being wrong with this story. Now, to me, the most obvious problem is that Leah and Rachel are treated as goods to be bartered. You shouldn't work for me for free. Name your price. Oh, you want my daughter, the younger one. Well, that ought to be worth seven years, don't you think? We have absolutely no idea what Leah and Rachel's ideas on the matter were. If we read the whole story, we are led to believe that Leah is hopelessly homely and destined for a life of solitude and sheep, and that Rachel and Jacob are bundles of pulsating hormones. Honestly, it reads like bad fan fiction. Rachel shows up to water her sheep, and the saxophone music is practically playing in the background. Why, whatever shall I do if only a big, strong man were here? One could catch a cold from the forced tin gale being generated by the fluttering of eyelashes. And then, of course, Jacob saunters up. Well, hey there, little lady. What can I do for you? I'm amazed he could still breathe, what with the puffing up of his chest. This story was clearly written by a man. And then, of course, there is Leah. Poor old Leah. Poor old Leah, my foot. Why do we worry whether she's worried about being left on the shelf? For all we know, Leah had fixed her lovely eyes on a shepherd or shepherdess a few fields over. There's absolutely nothing contained in this text to indicate that Leah gave so much as a rip for Jacob. There's also, by the way, nothing to suggest that lovely eyes was code language for homely as a mud fence. So what's going on here? When a character is a cipher, a blank slate, we can write on it 
anything we want, easy breezy. So what we see reflected in Rachel and Leah perhaps tells us more about ourselves than it does anything about either of them. The only thing we know for sure from the text is that Laban saw his lovesick nephew as a money-making scheme to pad his own pocket with free labor, which in and of itself is unusual because Laban's responsibility should have been to provide for his daughters and her maids as well. So in Jacob, he found a dupe that he could use for a significant reduction in force in his household. By the way, if what struck you as being wrong with this story was the polygamy aspect, let me be clear that this simply would not have offended our forebears. Their notions of marriage were very different from our own, which is why it's great fun to have this little chestnut in your back pocket for the next time someone comes near you foaming at the mouth about biblical marriage. Oh, and Jacob, Rachel, and Leah were first cousins. I'll just set that right there. Then we come to the double-crossing aspect. If you remember Jacob's whole story, you'll remember that he has already cheated his brother Esau out of almost everything that is important. And truly, there are few things in this life more satisfying than seeing a cheater get cheated. It's like when you're driving down Kelly Drive and someone zips around you and then in great justice, a few feet later you see them pulled over on the side of the road. It is perversely satisfying. And if ever there was somebody who deserved everything he got, it was Jacob. He has had it coming his whole life. What a strange interlude to find in the pages of the Bible. It reads like an early prototype of The Bachelor. Will Laban succeed in helping Leah to snatch the rose from Rachel's grasp? I would say it's not a family show, except that ironically, that's exactly what it is. It's not quite the most sexually twisted story in Genesis. You'll need to turn to chapter 38 for that, but it runs a close second or third. And yet, even with its NSFW rating, it is a family show. In fact, it's the family show. Because back at the beginning of Genesis, when God called Jacob's grandparents, Abraham and Sarah, commanding them to strike out into the unknown with nothing more than God as their companion, what God promised them was family. What God promised them was descendants, more numerous than the sand on the beach or the stars in the sky. What we need to remember about these Old Testament stories, whether they're mild or wild, is that they don't, they don't function independently. They are part of a great sweeping narrative arc that twists and turns and admittedly gets muddy at times, but nevertheless points us 
clearly to God's covenants. From time to time, those covenants may seem to be submerged in the stormy waters of personal and familial double-dealing and intrigue. Sometimes it's violence that threatens to derail the covenant. Sometimes it is sex. But no matter what, as we look at this narrative arc that spreads over chapters and chapters and generation to generation, God remains in charge of the covenant. God remains in charge of human history. Now, I remember that I stepped on a few theological toes last fall when I said that this is not the same thing as meaning that God foreordains our parking spaces, or more seriously, that if something bad happens to us, that God caused it. No, instead, these stories of the covenant remind us that God has a purpose for creation, that purpose being God's shalom, which is an intention of peaceable well-being for every bit of creation, everything God has made. That is the foundation, that is the heart of the covenant that moves the narrative arc of the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. That's what God is promising. And through the stories of Leah and Rachel, God is advancing a narrative of promises made and kept. Through Leah and Rachel, God is establishing a family, the people whom God will use as the crucible of salvation history. Between them and their maids, they bear 12 sons, and those 12 sons, perhaps known to us as the 12 tribes of Israel, with all their foibles, will move the story of the covenant even further down the line. As we track through the Pentateuch, also known as the Torah, we see that happening over and over again. Against human failings, God is constantly shaping the narrative. Just as things threaten to spin out of control completely, God brings the story back to the covenant. God reasserts that history may at times read like a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing, but that despite all outward appearances, the fullness of human history continues unfolding within the providence of God. And it is that foundational reality that makes this a story for us, a story for today. The promises that we cling to do sometimes seem to twist and turn, perhaps to become a bit murky, Perhaps we even reach that moment where we wonder if God is even around. But that is precisely the moment in which the promises of God may resurface unbidden to reassure us of the grace and love of God. Don't we need that reassurance in the moments when 
we get double-crossed, or when perhaps we are the ones treated like property, objects to be swapped and commodified, or perhaps we most need to be reminded of those foundational promises in the moments when we are the ones doing the objectifying and the swapping around. And yet neither in our worst moments, nor in the moments when we are treated the worst, are we anything other than what God made us to be, ultimately created with the potential for humanity. It is so easy, though, to objectify people, even perhaps when we try to do just the opposite. That is basically what Jacob did to Esau and what Laban did to Jacob. They objectified the other, and they both wound up being patsies for the con man and what the con man wanted to accomplish. Yes, it's really remarkably easy to objectify people. I would go so far as to say that we have to objectify people if we wish to justify ourselves when we're about to do something bad to them, at least if there is a scrap of humanity in us. And even though that is true, even though we frequently at times belie the humanity for which God made us, we remain nonetheless God's people, whom God loves deeply. We are not objects. We are human beings created for God's good purposes, which means that you are not a lawyer object, and you are not a stay-at-home parent object. You are not a doctor object, and I am not a minister object. Every one of us, flesh and blood human beings for whom Christ died and on whom God's grace is poured out lavishly. So you're not an object, not a social worker object, not a student object, never an object, always a human being worthy of God's love. And because God's grace is poured out on us like the waters of baptism, we are called to abandon the objectification of people in the commodity and political capital and negotiation and to refuse the efforts of others to turn ourselves back to objects. Because at its root, this idea that God has called and established a people to be a blessing to the world is hardly confined to the chapters and verses of Genesis. If we turn our attention to the stories of Jesus, we see again God calling to people to be a blessing to others. Jesus comes to the people of Israel as the reassertion of God's covenant because he himself is the embodiment of all that God promises. Nor is that confined to the pages of the gospel. 
We will find it in the epistles as well. Paul himself said as much. It's very easy to dump on Paul because God knows much of what he said has been misinterpreted and twisted to reduce people precisely to objects that it is very easy to want to dismiss Paul. But if we do so, we would miss that soaring passage of Romans where we learn of what God's promises mean for us, that nothing, 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 nothing can separate us from the love of God. What can separate us from the love of God? That's right, nothing. Not famine, not nakedness, not peril, not sword, not angels, nor principalities, nor things to present, nor things to come, height, depth. It's a really long list, isn't it? It's sort of meant to be exhaustive. So what can separate us from the love of God? Now, do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Because believing that might cost you something. Believing that might come at the cost of some money. We hear so much about the economy. You'd think money is the most all-fired thing important in the world, wouldn't you? And if money is, in fact, the most all-fired important thing in the world, then what we do with it tells us something about what we believe of our covenant with God. Or perhaps believing that may cost you some friends. I am fairly convinced that all of us need, at least some of the time, to be the person our friends have to tolerate. What I mean by that is to be so filled up with the calling to live into God's call to be the voice for those silenced that the people who know us and love us roll their eyes occasionally because we're at it again. Some folks don't take kindly to having the voiceless represented. Believing the covenants of God might cost you a friend or two. It may cost you your politics. Because if you lay your politics alongside those of Jesus and they don't line up, you have a decision to make. Because only God can be Lord. And God doesn't tolerate rivals for our loyalty. I do not believe that I can lay out the grace of God any more clearly than Paul does in Romans. But, and this is key, we are not allowed, nor should we even want, to spend our faith lives wallowing in the grace that is evident in Romans 8. Nor does Paul intend for us to. If we proof text this ode to grace out of Paul's letter, then we excise what comes with it, the expectations of a Christian life. Yes, Romans 8, foundational for our faith, absolutely to be sure. Read it again, read it often. But also Romans 12, where Paul lays out the characteristics of a life lived in Christ. Because Paul is thoroughly clear that a mature faith means that some of the time at least, 
we have to get up off of our blessed assurances and do something about something for somebody. That's bringing the story back to the covenant. And being part of a covenant can be costly. But if we believe that God is in fact in charge of human history, if God is in fact upholding all of creation in covenant love stronger than death, if in fact we are being upheld in promises so profound that they can outfox even the most clever swindlers and liars. Well, I know which side I want to be on. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
since the church's earliest days. Christians have come together to say what they believe, even when individuals may not fully understand the content of this faith. The community rises as one to say what they believe. And so we join with others throughout history to proclaim what our church believes using the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. The one who sows a small number of seeds will also reap a small crop. And the one who sows a generous amount of seeds will also reap a generous crop. Let us therefore share a generous offering that the realm of God's transforming love will become reality.
Gracious God, this offering is what we have to give you this day. Be it time, talent, or treasure, we lift these gifts to you. It is through you that all things are made new, and we ask that you renew our spirit to continue sharing our gifts with the least of us. Amen. Now let us pray together our thanksgiving and our intercession. Let us pray. O oh God, we give thanks for the gift of another day, for sunshine and long summer days, for the gift of rain, for shade and refreshing water to drink, we lift up our hearts to give thanks for the changing of seasons, for the movements of earth, sun, and moon, and the days slowly shortening. We give thanks for ordinary neighbors who use their gifts and talents to help others for those in this congregation who pack meals for others, who visit the sick, who tend urban gardens, who feed those who do not have homes. We give thanks for farmers, merchants, bakers, and others who help provide us with nourishment we are grateful for the everyday miracles that give us hope, for mustard seeds that grow into great bushes, for hidden treasure that if we look closely enough, we will find, for miracles such as plants growing and tomatoes and corn brought to harvest for the gifts of yeast blooming in dough and grapes ripening on the vine, for the miracle of music and the gifts of singing and playing instruments. God of grace and peace, we offer our prayers interceding for those in need. In this moment of prayer, we pause to remember those who don't have the resources they need, those who are lonely and are without community, those who cannot find peace in their own body or mind, those who struggle with faith, for young people and teachers preparing for school days, that their minds may be open to learning and to teaching, for those whose lives are shattered by gun violence in our own streets and across the nation, and especially for the families of the seven people killed by guns this week in Philadelphia. 
Give them comfort in their grief and loss. And give us the will to work to stop the violence. We pray for the earth, which is much in need of our protection. May we heed the signs it has sent us, the floods, the fires, the life-threatening heat, the tornadoes, and confess our complicity in these tragedies. Help each one of us to change the behaviors that have led to climate disasters. We pray for our own church and its members, for those who are sick or dying, for those who are grieving, for those who are lonely or seeking direction in their lives. We name friends and leaders in our church family this morning and pray for them. For Baron, our pastor, for his refreshment and Sabbath time while he is away. For Laura, our new associate, as she begins her ministry with us. For Andrew, as he prepares to leave us to take up a new calling at the Church of the Holy Redeemer. For our choir, as they travel to the United Kingdom to share the beauty of song with Christians there. Oh God, you have welcomed us into the kingdom of heaven. It is a kingdom that is beyond our understanding but we trust that you know it just as you know us. God, let us find peace in that which we cannot know and faith to trust always in your love. Finally, hear us now as we pray together the prayer that Christ taught us in the words which are etched on our hearts. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
If you want a promise to be memorable, make it simple. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? That's a promise. You can count on it. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace, both this day and forevermore. Amen. Amen.